Hello, everyone, and welcome to my digital talk. Today's topic is COVID-19 and Russia-China relations. I have a very special guest with me, Alexander Gabuev. Alexander Gabuev is a senior fellow and chair of the Russia in the Asia-Pacific program at the Carnegie Moscow Center. His research is focused on Russia's policy toward East and Southeast Asia, political and ideological trends in China, and China's relations with its neighbors, especially those in Central Asia. And Alexander Gabuev has some interesting, relevant research uh, related to the topic of Russia-China relations. And I'm really glad to have him with me today. Now, the relation between uh, China and Russia is uh, certainly a special one. Over the last decade, a rapprochement between both countries has been occasionally discussed as regards a possible strategic partnership between them or the lack of such. I even coined a term, the dragon bear in 2015, to mark an emerging new mode of their bilateral relations aimed at shaping the global order in the upcoming century. So my first question to Alexander is, how would you describe their relationship? Is it a strategic partnership? Is it a new axis of convenience? Or maybe is it a new mode of shaping the global order? Thanks, Felina, Servoth, and it's very uh, big pleasure to be with you here. Um, I think that the term that you alluded to comes from Boba Law's book, The Axis of Convenience, which is based on marriage of convenience. And I think that's that that's not a very bad metaphor. I think that most of the people who use Bobo's metaphor uh, instrumentalize it to say that it's very superficial, that it's not much here, there, and it's actually not an issue for European or American policymakers to, to worry about. Uh, I don't think that people have carefully read Bobo's book, which is, I think, in many aspects still relevant that doesn't feel the dynamics of the last 12 years, which have been really important. The term I use would be an entente, uh, the French term, which means that it's a strategic partnership uh, without a formal NATO type of alliance relationship. So there is no mutually legally binding obligation to defend each other in case of attack of a third party. Uh, it's a non-aggression pact between the two, and that's very important. And that's also complemented by a variety of areas where the two have interests that coincide. Uh, there are definitely interests that don't coincide uh, by the two, and there are some areas of rivalry. So let me dissect in that. Uh, I think that the introduction would be that if it is a marriage of convenience, that's a good description, but some, some pragmatic uh, relationships between men and women or men and men or women and women based on pragmatism uh, can be very durable and very strong. 
much longer than a very passionate relationship uh, born out of love. So I, I don't have any problems with, with saying that as the marriage of convenience. So the three key drivers that bring Moscow and Beijing closer together, if we take away all the external factors like the US pressure. Number one is security along the border. Uh, the 400 uh, or 4,200 kilometer border is the longest border that China shares with anybody. That's the second longest border for Russia after its border with Kazakhstan. And that's been a border of tension. Uh, that's been very dangerous and very expensive during the Sino-Soviet split. So once both countries uh, went into a more pragmatic foreign policy mode in the late 80s and had their priorities elsewhere, Russia was obsessed with NATO, it was obsessed with domestic perestroika and glasnost and effort to modernize the economy. China was definitely in experimentation mode that uh, later led to uh, reinvigoration of opening up policy. Both countries realize that they are spending too much on mutual hostility and that the way forward is to normalize the relationship, sort out the territorial issue, and never go back to the hostility. And that's what they did. So when people say that a friendly relationship is a Putin-Xi Jinping phenomenon, that's wrong. That started under Gorbachev and Deng Xiaoping, was continued with President Boris Yeltsin and Jiang Zemin, was inherited by Putin, Hu Jintao, and I think that Xi Jinping and Putin just continue along this strategic alley that was laid by their predecessors. So the bottom line here on strategy is not always with each other, but never against each other. Two countries have settled the border issue, two countries have demilitarized the border significantly, and they now are engaged in mutual uh, drills and other uh, trust-building measures along the security line. So that's the first pillar of this relationship. The second pillar is economics. Uh, both countries are mutually compatible in economic terms. Uh, Russia is just, uh, as an exporter, of course, is a big oil and gas tanks with metals, with uh, some arable land and ag products, with some sophisticated machinery in nuclear power plants and definitely defense industry, while China is a huge market for commodities. So Russia is basically having an economy of the same magnitude and the same structure to, to the east as it has European Union to its west. So it is only rational for Russia trying to tap Chinese boom, a uh, Chinese economic boom and export more commodities. And also China is trying to diversify sources of raw materials and is definitely happy to tap into the Russian commodities. And that creates a very strong bond, just like the economic bond between Russia and European Union. The third bond is politics. Uh, Russia, by definition of its constitution, which is about to change, but the definition will stay the same, is a democratic country with separation of powers and is a democratic republic. China, if you read carefully, the constitution is also a democracy, a socialist democracy with Chinese characteristics with the Communist Party in China being in charge and the other parties 
helping the Communist Party to govern China, but not coming to substitute it. Uh, the bottom line is that neither Russia nor China is a democracy in an Austrian, European or American sense. Both are authoritarian regimes with different degrees and different notion of authoritarianism. And that creates a lot of psychological comfort in talking to each other. And that creates a lot of shared agenda. On psychological comfort, I don't think that Xinjiang or Hong Kong is a big irritant for bilateral relationship. When Putin comes to Beijing, he will not mention Xinjiang in his remarks. He will not mention Hong Kong unless he wants to say that, hey, see, look, like the Americans are pushing color revolution to your shores just like they did in Ukraine with my God. We need to do something together. Uh, it's not a problem for Xi Jinping that gay rights in Chechnya region of Russia are violated by notorious Ramzan Kadyrov. It's not an issue at all. So that creates a lot of psychological comfort that both leaders don't enjoy talking to their Western counterparts, which have to bring some of the topics unless they are Donald Trump. And then in terms of global governance, these similarities between the regime and their seat at the UNP5 creates a lot of common agenda that they generally share. For example, debate on data localization or sovereignty on the internet versus freedom of access to any information regardless of digital borders. So R2P, human rights, uh, regulation of NGOs, this creates a lot of common agenda where Russia and China cooperate, not because somebody forces the partner to support its agenda, but because the agenda is negotiated. So I think that these three pillars, security along the border, economic compatibility, and similarity of the regimes is really the bottom line of this strategic partnership that drives the countries together, regardless of the US and Western policies. And on top of that comes the US and Russia ism with the West after 2014 annexation of Crimea and everything that followed and growing rivalry between China, the United States and shifting perceptions of China in the European Union. Mm -hmm. That's really, really great, uh, great um, description of uh, the actual state of uh, their relationship, uh, Alexander. However, we have now a big game changer, and that's the pandemic, uh, COVID-19. So um, we all know that uh, COVID-19 uh, hasn't spared any country um, from the virus outbreak. However, some were really hard hit. And if China managed well the virus outbreak, Russia was one of the countries that was really hard hit in terms of uh, numbers of infected and so on and so on. And it's still continuing uh, so as long as I know. Now, what has changed actually in the relationship between China and Russia following the COVID-19 virus outbreak um, and uh, I know that you have um, done some, conducted some research on that matter. Would you please elaborate on that? Sure. I think that's really a little bit too early to uh, come to definite conclusions of what the impact of the pandemic will be. So far, my general observation is that the pandemic for China, Russia, 
doesn't create too many new realities, but that exposes some of the realities that we've already been aware of, and that exacerbates or speeds up some trends that have been in this relationship. So uh, I would compare that uh, to some extent to the 2014 crisis between Russia and the EU that made Russia to pivot to China even more. So the three trends that we discussed, uh, security, economic alignment, and political alignment have been there since at least uh, 90s or since at least Putin came to power. But uh, that didn't lead to a very deep and strong relationship between Russia and China. And I think that relationship became much thicker as a result of 2014 and Western sanctions. Because Russia has reassessed a lot of risks that were previously attached to partnership with China. And I'm happy to talk about it later on if you are interested. But then Russia came out of 2014 annexation of Crimea uh, much more confident that partnership with China is in Russia's economic interest, that risks attached to that partnership are not that huge and that they are manageable, and then the asymmetry and the growing asymmetry between Russia and China is there, it's irreversible, and that's the price to pay uh, for deepening this alignment. But the, al the benefits of the alignment are much bigger than. Uh, the risk or danger brought by not engaging with China economically and on, on security fronts. So I think that COVID-19 helped to expose that despite this growing alignment, there is still a significant level on this of distrust on both the elite level and popular level. If you look at the figures, we don't have very good polling data for uh, to navigate China's public attitudes. Uh, not all of the data and all of the sociological research conducted in China uh, is really trustworthy. We have data in Russia done by an independent pollster, Levada Center, which is one of the old partners of Carnegie that does its annual survey on Ch attitudes towards uh, other countries in Russia for more than two decades now. And uh, what Levada's research established is that gradually, since early 90s, the attitude towards China have improved dramatically in Russia. Uh, and I think that it's very hard to navigate the elite attitude, judging by my experience talking to Russian elite members, senior officials, or the oligarchs, or middle managers of state-owned companies and private companies. I think that the knowledge and the understanding of China has improved. The problem is that there is deep-seated mistrust in pockets of the Russian population, and it popped up when there is a crisis that involves something very sensitive to the national psyche. And that involves land, forest, water, so China's involvement in Russia's natural resources and environment, or public health for that matter. For example, Two years ago, when Chinese investors proposed to have a small bottling facility on Lake of Baikal, the locals protested a lot. Despite bottling water is something the most environmentally friendly that you can do on Baikal Lake, that wouldn't affect Baikal environment for a penny. 
And there were a lot of similar foreign-owned bottling plants along Baikal already. But the name China came up and that got the local population very agitated. Mm -hmm. Same with COVID-19. So because the virus came from China, this distrust was, was coming up very rapidly. So the Russian government decided to shut down its border with China immediately. The decision was taken it, uh, right after uh, Wuhan was, was shut down. And I think that mm -hmm. Russia was the first neighbor to really seal off its border with China, to some dissatisfaction of the Chinese colleagues who were asking uh, their counterparts not to make a big pause, not to shut down the borders. And I think that saved Russia two months for preparation. Russia's problem is that it thought that China was dangerous, but it now thought that Italy or Europe is dangerous. And it didn't seal its border with the European Union. And that's where all of the cases that brought the pandemic to Russia uh, came from uh, Southern Europe. So Italy, France, Spain. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there was also a big paranoia in some cities, particularly in Moscow, where the city government really tried to evict some of the Chinese students. Uh, they deported Chinese citizens uh, from Moscow. Uh, sometimes the police snatched students on the streets. So that was a pretty nasty picture. And then the Russian government was not really happy with uh, Beijing not sharing the living sample of the virus. Uh, China didn't do that with anybody. And we only guess why that happens. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, don't, I don't know. My personal guess is that since the Minister of State Security was on this small group, small leading group in charge of the crisis, the chaired by Prime Minister Li Keqiang, uh, everything related to the virus was deemed top secret. And once this top secret tag on anything in China, it's very hard to remove it. So the sample was not shared with anybody. But that made a very bad impression on Russia. And then on China's side, there were also grievances. Chinese were unhappy with Russia leaving the border so quickly. Chinese were unhappy with Russians uh, evicting their citizens and doing that in a pretty brutal way. So the Chinese ambassador to Moscow, Zhang Hanhui, had to write a letter to the mayor, Sergei Sabianin, to ask him to behave uh, in a civilized fashion. But I think that both countries managed to tone down these differences, wipe them under the carpet, and on public domain, they played the game of mutual support. So any official uh, conversation, Putin has praised Xi Jinping's role and China's effort to combat the virus. So did Syria when he came to Munich Security Conference. And in every public statement, the Russians are very supportive of China. And China, officially at least, has never blamed Russia for management of the crisis or for poor treatment of Chinese citizens. So that's the mistrust element to that. So it was there, but I don't think it's mutual or something uh, lasting. So it's, it's this mistrust between the two countries that pops up in times of crisis, but then it goes down and it doesn't prevent to make the relationship thicker. And then there is the economic effect. I think that economic effect is very much driven by commodity markets, and that's why it's very hard to predict. We saw that the Russia-China trade was stable in the first quarter of this year, despite collapsing trade with everybody else. 
in April, the trade remains stable, and then last uh, month in May, the trade has finally collapsed, and Russian exports to China have collapsed by roughly third to May in 2019 uh, in dollar terms. And that's definitely a result of collapse in the global oil prices. The physical volume of oil that Russia has shipped to China have gone up by roughly 20%. So the trend that we've observed is that the volumes shipped to China have increased. And as Russia had to accept very painful cuts to its oil production as part of OPEC plus deal, uh, there was a gradual reorientation of Russian oil exports from the West to China. And again, that's trend we've been observing in the previous decade. For example, before Crimea annexation, China's share of Russian trading partner in 2013 was just 10%. Last year, it was roughly 16%. First quarter of this year, it was 17.6%. So the share of China as Russia's trading partner is growing, and that's been exacerbated and accelerated by COVID-19. How long that impact will last is questionable. So I think that it's really too early to tell, and we'll see that. But my final point is we already see some decisions that will have a long-lasting effect on Russia's reorientation, economic reorientation towards China. I would mention only two. One is Gazprom is reviving the power of Siberia 2 project. As mm -hmm. Russian uh, gas export to Europe is facing significant problems with uh, demand in Europe going down for a variety of reasons, including uh, energy efficiency and uh, renewables and growing competition and climate change. But overall, the long-term prospect of Russian gas in Europe are pretty blue, and that there is effort to torpedo the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. So Russia still will produce a lot of gas from Western Siberia uh, gas fields and in Yamal, but it needs to market it. So it has revived a project to construct a land-based pipeline to China that will go not through Altai, but through Mongolia, and bring up to 55 billion cubic meters of gas from the very same fields that Russia uses to export its gas to Europe. And Gazprom will have arbitrage. Uh, if Power of Siberia 1, the gas pipeline that Russia has just commissioned end of last year, is a benchmark for the price, China is paying the same price as Germany, the largest gas customer of Gazprom in Europe is paying. Uh, definitely for Russia, its contract with Germany is much more beneficial because the infrastructure is there for decades and uh, the payback period is long over us. So Gazprom is enjoying a very huge profit margin. Here, the infrastructure is very expensive and Gazprom, in order to build the first pipeline, had to develop two entirely new gas fields. So that's a huge context. And we don't know whether the project will be profitable. The Power of Cellular 2 project may be much more profitable because the, the uh, gas fields are already produced, so you just need to build a pipe. But uh, we don't know, and that really depends on the market conditions in China. How much gas will China ultimately consume? How successful will the transit from coal to gas in Chinese power generation will happen? So there are a lot of unknowns. 
But this decision to build the pipeline to China is there, and I think that's directly impacted by COVID-19. And the second factor is Russian's railway monopoly, RGD, has its investment program cut this year because everybody in Russia, because of COVID-19, is in belt-tightening mode. So the money has shifted from upgrading access to ports in the West to upgrade access to ports in the East and address some bottlenecks on trans Rail Railway and Baikalamu Railway. So this money will to increase Russia's export to China, including coal and iron ore and other metals. And that's also a direct impact of COVID-19. So my prediction is that Russia's exposure to China and Russia's dependency on Chinese economy will grow as a result of COVID-19. Nothing new there as a trend, but that's been exacerbated by the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And you've also um, pointed out the key principle of pragmatism in their relationship, uh, which is not always with each other, but never against each other. Now, I would like to extrapolate a little bit more on that matter when it comes to converging, uh, but also divergent uh, geopolitical interests, because this is going to, and also actually goes, because this is going to impact their relation in the future. If you look at Russia, Russia has more or less a vertical extension of geopolitical um, interests and security interests, uh, starting with the Arctic, stretching along the eastern flank of NATO, which is the western flank uh, of uh, Russia with a lot of um, uh, concentrated uh, military, military power there. And then, of course, the seas, the warm seas, uh, Black Sea, um, Caspian Sea, and then moving, uh, meanwhile, successfully towards the Middle East, which was also a traditional playground uh, during the Cold War, and now stretching also to North Africa. And uh, that means, of course, Mediterranean Sea. Now, if we look at China on the other side, it's more or less a kind of a horizontal extension of uh, geopolitical interests. Uh, just uh, take the Belt and Road uh, grand uh, strategy. It's not, of course, a grand strategy. It, uh, alone, the name has been has been changed uh, since its launch, and unfortunately, we will not have the time to to talk about uh, this specific geoeconomic uh, agenda. Uh, but China, but uh, it's uh, obviously oriented towards Europe as an end goal and the in, uh, more or less the industrialized uh, heart of Europe, which is uh, Germany, of course, but also stretching meanwhile to Africa and even Latin America. Now, um, I would like to ask you, how do you see this divergent um, or convergent geo-economic, uh, geopolitical interests in terms of post-COVID-19 context? Do you think that uh, this might uh, specifically these areas of uh, overlapping areas, geographic areas, where actually both actors have their own agenda, their own 
uh, goals. Um, take uh, the post-Soviet space, like um, Central Asia, the Balkans, meanwhile, Central Eastern European countries. Then again, uh, certain Russian networks have been revived uh, from they, they were existent uh, during the Soviet uh, time. Now, are certain relations uh, to certain political elites have been revived. Russia is present in Latin America, but also in Asia. And China is increasing its footprint. And certainly, the expectation is that it will seek, to some extent, a global outreach. So how do you see these um, convergent and divergent interests and goals in the context of uh, post-COVID-19 relationship? I think that the dynamics are broader than just COVID-19. And COVID-19 is, again, an episode that doesn't shape the bigger trends. It probably exacerbates US-China rivalry, which is important, but the rivalry has been there and driven by really fundamental factors and not mm -hmm. Trump's mismanagement of the pandemic and uh, yeah. Blaming China, so that has added a domestic political element to that. That has added an emotional element to that. But uh, I don't think that uh, the reassessment of attitude towards China in European Union is driven by the pandemic. It's definitely one of the important factors. But I think that the fundamental factors are are, are there and they are different. So uh, on Russia, China, I would four free areas. One, they're, they're, the interests are convergent globally. The other where the interests are not convergent and not divergent. Uh, and basically they don't need to fight about it. And then there are areas where the interests might be in clash uh, and Russia and China are trying very hard to mitigate uh, those challenges and trying to accommodate each other. So I think the point that both share is that both are dissatisfied with the U.S. hegemony, with the U.S.-centered uh, international order. Uh, we can discuss whether the uh, idealized version of rules-based international liberal order has ever existed, even after the collapse of the Soviet Union, but uh, the reality is there that the U.S. is still the preeminent global power. Uh, it operates a very strong alliance network to fight all the damage that Donald Trump arguably did to that. And it's there checking both China and Russia. And I think that what Russia wants to see is that the dominance of the U.S. in international affairs is gone. And the world would return to the 19th century concert of great powers, where probably Russia is not the strongest and is not even in top tier uh, of the global powers. Like top tier will be China and the US. I think that everybody in Russia realizes that Russia has no resources to compete with either the US or China. But Russia will be able to maintain strategic autonomy. And will as tier two of sovereign great powers that sit at the table with two biggest guys. And the number of big guys will be maintaining strategic autonomy and will be powerful enough for both uh, superpowers to reckon with is pretty limited. And I think that Russia's calculation will include probably India, 
is number one. And then there is a big gap. Uh, Russia would go like, okay, once Germany, France, and UK become less dependent from the US, and if Japan becomes slender from the US, they can count in. But since their foreign policy for now is so dependent on the US, they don't really have the strategic autonomy. So again, that's a very small prestigious league of great power. So North Korea and Iran won't count despite nuclear weapons. So that, that's a tricky Russian metric. Uh, and again, I think that there is a lot of pride and ego in that. So it's, it's a good uh, matter for analysis from therapy perspective. Uh, but that's, that's just the perception. So in Russia's view, what China's rise is helping is it's helping to undo the U.S. monopoly on managing global security and the uh, U.S. hegemony. So that's where Russia sees China's rise as a welcoming trend. And at the same time, Russia doesn't believe that China will be able to substitute the U.S and play the same role as the U.S. played in global system. Russia doesn't believe that China will create a China-centered international order that will be based on rules written by China, favoring China, and that a lot of nations will subscribe to that voluntarily as opposed to being coerced. So fueling rise of China will help to break up U.S. monopoly but will not lead to Chinese monopoly. That's the Russian strategic calculation. And then the symmetry in China-Russia relationship is the price to pay to abandon U.S. international order. So the ideal dream that Putin has talked about is that there is a new Yalta moment where the West finally loses its arrogance. It comes down to our eye level and starts talking and starts to discuss rules of engagement among great powers. So, and then we reestablish the order along the lines of Yalta or along the line of Vienna concert, which I think is a better metaphor here of the 19th century. That's the vision. I think here, and then China's goal, that's something elusive. We can discuss whether China really wants to create a global, architecture where China is at the center, whether China is interested in security preeminence in East Asia, its traditional role, and then global reach, whether China is really unhappy about the rules uh, of international trade or international financial system, or it wants to have a stake in global governance that reflects China's global ambitions and uh, its GDP, so it's, I think it's all debatable. What does Xi Jinping's new era and the community of a shared future for the mankind really mean? I think that there is a lot of unclarity uh, on the Chinese side, and it's both deliberate and it's both born out of rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. It's not a very clear defined concept. And also, we don't know what's going to happen in 2049 when China is to celebrate the centennial um, of establishment of PRC. The bottom line is that both countries are interested in unpending US-led liberal order, and they're happy to work with each other in very pragmatic terms. 
Russia is happy to sell more hardware to China to both earn the money that strengthen China's positions in the South China Sea. It's happy to share very sensitive military technology like the early warning system for missile attacks. Uh, and then China is happy to provide economic lifeline to Russia and share some of the civilian technology and also some of the military technology like drones and, uh, and other elements. So that's a shared agenda. And when it comes to uh, buzzing US allies or working in tandem to troll them or to undermine their influence in the regions, I think that's where Russia and China work together in tandem. That's very much a display on the Korean Peninsula and in East Asia, where Chinese and Russian bombers have done strategic patrol for the first time in April this year. And uh, it's uh, also uh, very visible in the Balkans, although I don't think that there is much coordination there yet. Uh, we've seen some coordinated effort for post-COVID-19 relief effort in Moldova, where Chinese ambassador and Russian ambassador have teamed up to support the President Dodon. Uh, but I think that so far it's limited, but we will see that growing. And here, I think that rise of Chinese uh, interests and power cloud in the Balkans and in Eastern Europe is seen by Russia as something which is welcome and happening at the expense of the European Union, not at the expense of Russia. So as long as Chinese involvement provides uh, Serbia and other countries in shared neighborhood alternatives to Brussels, not to Moscow, Moscow is happy. And at the same time, it doesn't have too many influence to push back against China. It knows that it's not a top tier player in Balkan anymore, though it tries to do something over there. Uh, but it's not that the Chinese and Russian interests there are in conflict. I think that they are pretty complementary. Then there are interests where they are not necessarily complementary, but both countries don't compete. Like, for example, in the Middle East, why would China support Russia's operation in Syria in any meaningful way, send troops or relief efforts and stuff. So it, it's interested in combating uh, the ISIS, and it's probably interested in keeping Syria as one state with a Assad regime in one piece uh, and preventing Syria from becoming a dysfunctional uh, democracy driven by sectarian violence. But that's it. It doesn't want to move a finger. It doesn't really want to support Russia's effort in Libya in any meaningful way. Uh, it doesn't need to recognize Crimea as part of Russia. It doesn't want to jeopardize its relationship with European Union, the US, or Ukraine for that matter, over Crimea issue. But Russia also doesn't need China's support or official recognition for Crimea. Same comes from for issues in East Asia like the South China Sea. Russia doesn't need to officially support China on its nine-dash line plane because it will jeopardize Russia's relationship with Vietnam. It doesn't want to take stands on Doklam or on current tensions along the line of contact between India and China because India is also an important partner for Russia. And China is okay with that. So never against each other, but not always with each other, that works. And there are perhaps 
two areas where there, we, we should expect growing competition. One is the Arctic, where China is increasingly visible. I think it's more visible on the economic side rather than on the military side so far. Although we hear some NATO officials and European officials worried about Chinese military involvement, I think that military involvement is very far away. So China's Navy will definitely have some Arctic operations. They are far away so far. Uh, Russia is reviving its capabilities in the Arctic. But then I think that what Russia did is efficiently pushing China out of the Arctic Council uh, to the observer status that doesn't give China any real powers in the Arctic. And then welcome China as an investor and as technology provider to develop some of the projects like Yamal LNG, gas exploration, or like Arctic LNG too. Partly this is driven by the sanctions imposed by the European Union and the US that sanctions uh, oil and gas exploration in the Russian Arctic, exceeding uh, certain amounts or providing certain technology for deep drilling. And that's where China comes as a big bar, as a financial partner, as a security provider, and as a technology provider. So I think that here the interests are compatible when it comes to economics. Central Asia is an intriguing piece, and that's where naturally everybody would expect that, oh, this is the region where the two will fall apart because that used to be a Russian sphere of influence and now China is intriguing encroaching there. But I think so far Beijing and Moscow has managed to establish the balance of interest there. And that comes on top of Russia's realization that economic competition in Central Asia with China is locked before it has even started. The future of economic relationship between Russia and all the France is a relationship between Saudi Arabia and Oman. Both are neighbors, both are Arabs, both are Sunni Muslims, uh, both used to be part of the same art for centuries, but don't, you don't have a trade relationship, like functioning trade relationship, because they have the same commodity. So what's the basis of Russia as a large commodity exporter in Eurasia to have a trade relationship with Kazakhstan, with Turkmenistan, with Kyrgyzstan, which are local direct competitors. Uh, so basically, if you try to put yourself in the shoes of Trump, Russia is our competitor, Iran is our competitor, Europe is far away, Tapi linking uh, their natural resources to India for Afghanistan will not happen anytime soon because of security in Afghanistan. So China is the only huge market next door which has appetite for commodity, which is capable of building infrastructure and which is capable of investing. And uh, there are some bribes or other incentive for the local elites needed, China is happy to do that as well. So all the long run, China will be the dominant trading partner, the dominant investor and dominant creditor in Central Asia, regardless of what Russia thinks. And I think that Moscow is pretty clear cut about that. It's nothing that Russia can do about it. So, so far, Russia tries to manage this uh, equilibrium by saying, okay, China, you will be the spending power and the driver of economic activity there. We will be the guarantor of security for this military bloc that we have. I think that consensus so far, that consensus is being unintended by Chinese growing security interests in the region, 
uh, and we've seen the first military deployment in Tajikistan, which is formerly a Russia treaty ally. So this Chinese interest will be growing because China will be happy to free ride on Russian Kalashnikovs in the region for a definite time. The problem is that China doesn't believe that Russia 30, 50 years down the road will have the capacity to police the region, which is still pretty volatile and seen in China as a threat to stability in Xinjiang, which is the primarily domestic concern. So China wants to have some instruments and tools to address local unrest or splashing terrorism if Russia is able to fix that. So I think that we see some conversation between Russia and China where the real red lines are. Bottom line for Russia is that it doesn't believe that China will replace Russia as a security guarantor in Central Asia because of what's happening in Xinjiang. So mm -hmm. we talked about Sinophobia or distrust towards China in Russia. Imagine the level of distrust towards China in Central Asia, particularly in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, two nations that have been affected by Xinjiang because they were ethnic Kazakhs and Kyrgyz put into so-called re-education camps uh, mm -hmm. by the authorities. And uh, they don't have nuclear power. They are not as powerful as Russia. And if Russia doesn't feel super comfortable about China's rise, imagine Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan in particular, and also everybody else, except for maybe Tajikistan. So these countries want to have a multi-vector foreign policy, trying to balance their relationship. But they know that as they are probably dissatisfied, there is some sentiment toward the previous colonial model Russia. Russia is far less a threat to their sovereignty than China going forward. So Russia expects that they will try to balance and they will remain a certain Russian involvement in the region. And they will be able to talk about this to the Chinese who also have interest in keeping the same authoritarian regimes and stability in place and keep the American balance. Let's stop here. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about uh, the global system and the global order transition uh, a little bit. Uh, now, obviously, from Beijing's perspective, um, the worst case scenario would be a situation in which Russia uh, starts adapting to this global rise of China. How? By balancing uh, through a potential ad hoc partnership with the United States something that China did in the 70s uh, during the Cold War. Um, that also would mean uh, that uh, the both uh, systemic competitors and rivals, uh, United States and China, would probably seek at some point if this rivalry deepens, uh, which is my expectation, um, would probably seek uh, to have Russia as one of, uh, and you've outlined it already very well, uh, as, as potential uh, ad hoc partner, just because it's a worse payoff to have to to have Russia in uh, the rivals block. But then again, uh, there are emerging other regional powers, and you mentioned India. So one of these um, certainly one of the shifts in the global power competitions will be witnessed in the Indo-Pacific, where tensions um, between China and Russia are also nothing new and not a new phenomenon, but cer certainly will be exacerbated by a regional rivalry between 
these two powers. Uh, now, India is expected to become the third economic power by 2030, 2035. Um, and these are the largest uh, demographic uh, powers. So there are certainly some reconfigurations in play. How do you see this? How do you think that uh, Russia will approach a possible emergence of Paxinica? Um, then again, what is your assessment uh, when it comes to uh, ad hoc reconfigurations, United States with Russia against China? Uh, at this stage, of course, absolutely unthinkable. But uh, for uh, geopolitical analysts, uh, one of uh, the major uh, tasks is also to think of the future. And uh, we know that in realpolitik, uh, there are no internal uh, friends and no internal enemies, only eternal national friends. And we also know that uh, the Russian realpolitik approach is that Russia has no friends. Uh, the only friends are the army and the navy, if we re refer to historical quotes. So how do you see actually this, um, this possible systemic developments? The, cy the cyber uh, uh, weapon didn't exist at the time of Alexander III that you referred to. So I would add the Russian hackers and cyber warriors to that trend uh, along with the nukes. So uh, I think that uh, for Russia's national interest, regardless of who sits in the Kremlin, stable relationship with China is paramount imperative. Uh, the risks of going back into confrontation are just too high for Russia to join any coalition trying to contain China. And then I think that Russia's uh, consensus in the elite is that grievances about human rights in China are just obsolete. China will be China. Uh, Russians are pretty cynical and blunt about that. That's a giant power that is very unlikely to become democratic. It might be more accountable. The government might have more respect for civil rights, but not necessarily political rights. And then I think that the big fear in Russia is a more democratic China, which is very likely to become much more nationalistic uh, and aggressive as a result. And uh, there are a lot of uh, precedents of democratic countries who are like really a terrible authoritarian nationalist regime coming to power in some countries through democratic means. So I think that the democratic China is something that Russia fears a lot. So the current regime is somewhat predictable and stable. And yes, there is this growing assertiveness, but Russia understands much better how to deal with an assertive authoritarian China rather than a democratic China that Russia doesn't believe in. So I think that Overall, there is this belief that we need to maintain strategic partnership with China without crossing the line, without framing an alliance that will put Russia into a subordinate position. Russia is very much aware that, yes, it's powerful, but the asymmetry between Russia and China is there. And then the time is really on China's side. Uh, so China is stronger than Russia today, it will be even stronger tomorrow, and it will be even more stronger in, in a week. And that this gap is continuing to grow. So how does Russia address this? One possible avenue would to uh, reform itself, right? To become a more vibrant 
innovative society, diversify the economy, unlock the creativity of the Russian people, and not make Russian brilliant IT engineers be successful in Silicon Valley, but be successful at home in Russia. So still, if China grows 5% from uh, like a size of laptop, and Russia's economy is size of iPhone, 5% of China's growth produces a new iPhone every other year, right? Uh, but the, uh, okay, half of the iPhone, please. Uh, but the problem with Russia is that it's not growing even 5%, right? By COVID-19, due to economic, like systemic limitations, which are really deep down in the political structure and the political economy, uh, the growth is barely 1.2% 1, 1 below the global average. So one avenue is to reform and reinvigorate the economy to keep the pace. So this asymmetry will continue to grow, but will be not as striking as it is now. And that avenue is probably foreclosed for Russia because of political, economic, domestic limitations. So as long as the current system is in place, and the current system has a lot of steam to go forward. That's, that's my estimate. There won't be a reform. The other avenue would be to balance relationship with China to improve the relationship with the West. And then still, look at the economy. European Union is still by far dominant trading partner, dominant loan provider, and dominant investor in Russia. It's the perception is shifting and the percentage is shifting uh, in favor of China at the expense of the European Union. But this dependence on Europe that's been built for decades and even centuries will be very slow to unbuild. So again, it takes another decade or two if the current trends continue and nothing happens, that Russia will arrive at an equilibrium where China will be 35% of Russia's trade, Another 35 will be the European Union, and another 35 will be the rest of the world, probably. Uh, the danger is that if China controls your 35% of your trade and investment and loans, it's very different from the European Union. Because in Europe, as much as the Russian elite might fret about regulations and European Commission and facilities, there is still arbitrage between national capitals and Brussels. There are still rules that the Europeans follow, where in case of China, it's just one rule setter, and that's the Communist Party of China. So if you to leverage Russia's exposure to Chinese market, uh, its connection of through pipelines only to Chinese market, it can easily do so, and there have been precedents. So Russia, in ideal world, would want to balance this relationship. The problem is that the relationship with the U.S. is so deeply broken and is poisoned by Russia's stupid 2016 interference in U.S. election, that there is no easy way out. Even if we look at short term, Trump is elected, there will be no substantial improvement in the ties as we have seen over the course of the last four years. Trump has, you know, these ideas about improving ties to Russia in order to bring it into the club of countries to balance China. That doesn't happen, and the relationship continue to deteriorate. With Biden, I think that the relationship will be also pretty, uh, pretty anonymous, and uh, there are no clear, quick fixes. Although some of the rational, pragmatic elements like Star Treaty might be uh, maintained, 
Uh, in Europe, you see there are very different views in this emerging debate on how actually Russia-China uh, alignment affects European Union's interests. There are voices like President Macron, who says Russia doesn't want to become a, a vassal of China, and we should help Russia to maintain a strategic autonomy and bring Russia either back into the family or maintain a strategic independence from China. And there is definitely a consensus view in parts of Eastern Europe, like Poland, the Czech Republic, the Baltic Republics, which have uh, historic grievances against Russia for understandable reasons. And as long as Russia continues annexation of Crimea and involvement in Donbass, there is no way that these countries can be persuaded that the threat of China-Russia alignment is bigger than Russia, like re-engaging Russia per se. So I don't think that there is a consensus uh, among transatlantic allies, and then there is a consensus on Russia among European allies. So that will leave this relationship very protracted. The way forward for Russia, and that's something that Russia attempts to do now, is to balance these relationships and reach out to other parties that are still independent power centers. And India is very important here. ASEAN is another uh, important factor. And then Putin's outreach to Abe is also part of the picture. Russia's problem is that some of these countries are American allies, like Japan. So there is not that much that they can deliver in terms of security, and that includes also South Korea. Uh, and some of them are too far away and the trade is too small. And then every hour you spend on improving ties to China will provide you quicker and bigger benefits in terms of trade and investment and loans than every hour you spend on improving ties to India and ASEAN. And that's the paradox. In theory, Russia really aims to have a balanced Asia policy and reach out to everybody and talk to everybody. But in pragmatic terms, the relationship to China is just so big, so complex, and so beneficial that dependency on China is gradually thickening, providing to this asymmetry. So I think that addressing this asymmetry amid grow growing tensions between uh, US and China in the bilateral system will be the major challenge for the Russian foreign policy in the decade to come. Last point, I think that Russia is not worried about China's rise because it thinks that it's going to be global competition between China and the US. I think that one of the likely scenario is that uh, China might be pushed out a lot of developed countries, like Huawei will be kicked out of, 5G networks in many countries that are allied to the US. And then China will establish a regional sphere of influence. So Pax Sinica will not be global, but it will be regional and it will be centered in continental Eurasia. And it will be not a formal alliance, it will be not a trading zone, but it will be China at the center of many links around technology, finance, trade, and security, where China is the dominant partner and Chinese neighbors don't have too many alternatives. And that will include Central Asia, that will include North Korea, that will include Russia, that will include part of ASEAN, that will include Pakistan. And I think that's where the system, will, like the uh, telecommunication system will be based on Huawei standards. China will be the dominant presence 
in the local finance going forward. And Russia will be increasingly embedded in this Pax Seneca, which will be very different from Pax Americana, and will increasingly depend on China on the key uh, areas of geoeconomic statecraft in the 21st century. It's not control over your territory like the old colonialism. It's not attractiveness of your soft power model or uh, global trade rules like Pax Americana. It's leveraging dependencies along this fault lines of technology, finance, trade and economic and rule setting. And that's, I think, very much a likely uh, perspective like 10, 20 years down the road. It's not preordained, but I think that's something that Russia and other parties should very carefully look into. Mm -hmm. There is a question from the audience I would like to ask uh, as my final question to you, because we already reached our limit of 60 minutes. Uh, it's an interesting question. Um, do you think that um, the buildup of a terrestrial connectivity within the Belt and Road would actually uh, be profitable for Russia? Will be Russia a winner or loser from this process? Obviously, China is going to invest a lot in creating a land connectivity as opposed to the maritime um, connectivity, which is uh, still very much controlled by the United States. In case that there is a kind of a blockade, uh, this is going to be a kind of a good alternative to uh, transport uh, goods, products uh, from Asia to Europe and other parts of the world. So will Russia participate in this terrestrial connectivity? Will Russia be a winner of this process or actually will Russia become more dependent and basically turns, uh, turns out as a kind of a loser from the process because also other countries will be included? Uh, in this terrestrial, obviously, in this terrestrial connectivity, such as Central Asian countries, you've mentioned uh, some of them, but Turkey is also very much interested, and uh, Eastern European countries, um, and so on and so forth. Short answer is Russia will definitely be one of the winners uh, mm -hmm. because the most efficient and commercially viable route uh, from Western China to Europe goes through the customs union, which is Russia, Kazakhstan, and Belarus. That's the shortest geographically. That's one that doesn't require you cargo reloads on sea. Uh, for example, the one that involves the Black Sea or the Caspian Sea. Imagine the number of reloads on the platform that increases the cost. And then imagine the number of customs border that you need to cross to go through Azerbaijan, Georgia, Turkey, to Europe. Uh, with a customs union in place, you basically don't have an internal border between Kazakhstan, Russia, and Belarus. So your cargo train is exiting Xinjiang and going to Europe with the two customs border, namely China, Kazakhstan, and Belarus, Poland. Uh, and I think that we have seen a tenfold increase in number of cargo trains going between uh, Western Europe and uh, Western China via this link. And that's, again, the most profitable and the most economically sustainable. Big problem here is uh, that the maritime connectivity, despite the uh, time uh, consumed, is still much more beneficial uh, 
because in logistics, the time really doesn't matter except for a narrow uh, group of cargo that are time sensitive. It's really about the points. And uh, the uh, delivery on, on land is beneficial only as long as China keeps the subsidies. Whether China will subsidize that indefinitely or whether the amount of cargo will be so large that the prices will go down and China will be gradually reducing subsidies and this route will still be viable is an open question mark. But I think that Russia has a lot of bets on, on this part of Belt and Road. Uh, and it, it is not a direct rival to the Trans-Siberia because uh, I think that cargo that is targeted by this route going to Central Asia is really cargo from Xinjiang and Western provinces of China. And that includes Sichuan, Chongqing, Gansu, and some others. And that really depends on how that China reallocates production towards Western China. When it comes to Trans-Siberia, this is really cargo from Japan, South Korea, and Northeast China, Dunbei. And then most of the cargo going on Trans-Siberia is not translated by the Russian coal and other natural resources going to Asia. So it's not competition and uh, again Russia if that road materializes and is commercially viable will be a big winner here. Mm -hmm. Well thank you very very much for uh, answering all my questions in such an extensive way and I Pleasure. would like to I would like to point also to Alexander uh, Alexander's uh, webpage on Carnegie uh, Endowment. You can find his research. You can find him also on Twitter. And a big project that we are doing that involves all of the Carnegie centers combined. There is a separate webpage, and there is a lot of research along the uh, the topics that we've just discussed. Exactly. So if you want to dig deeper into these topics, if you want to find uh, more, uh, to learn more about uh, these issues, go to the um, Carnegie Endowment webpage. You will find easily Alexander on uh, internet. And I'm really, really thankful for taking the time and uh, staying with me for more than 60 minutes. And I wish you good luck with all your future research. Uh, this uh, topic will be definitely very relevant uh, in the future, in the next decade. And I'm looking forward to further discussions on the matter. Thank you very Pleasure. much. Pleasure. And have a safe day in Vienna. Bye. Thank you. You, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.